as I was mentioning, we know from you, when you read Swami Vivekananda's life, he really did have such a wide variety of experiences when he was traveling. He mixed with peasants, from peasants to kings. He mixed with the pious and the atheists, the unlettered and the scholarly, the impoverished and the aristocrat. He slept in forests and caves, in huts and houses, and in mansions and palaces. He resorted to all manner of transport. He trudged countless miles by foot, rode in rollicking bullock carts and carriages. He uh, traversed many countries by train, and he sailed in boats and ocean liners too. And, not surprisingly, these travels challenged and broadened and clarified his outlook on life. And it also, along the way, changed the outlook on life of the thousands he came into contact with. So in our panel session today, we're, we're going to dip into this adventurous side of the Swami's life. And we'll look at how he was so open-minded, he, he could question his own culture and background, and, and he just was always discovering the best in the other cultures of the world that he came into contact with. So, so now let's look at uh, what events, teachings, life lessons from his travels resonate most with the panelists. Are there any particular standout moments? And maybe we'll start with you, Ami, and let's oh, hope right. your microphone's working right. Yep, I think it is. <laughs> That's good. Yeah. <laughs> um, so like Robert said, I think... Um, just to, you know, I probably repeat the same thing, but Swami Vivekananda met his guru, Thakur, uh, Sri Ramakrishna, at the age of 18. Uh, if I think like an 18-year-old, um, it's a very young, tender age. He had all these questions and turmoil that we all have read about, and that's what took him to Thakur in the first place. After that, he spent uh, only five short years with his guru, where he possibly got a lot of those personal quests and anguish answered from his guru. After that, he had only 16 years in which he actually spread his message to the rest of the world before Swamiji left his body at the age of 39. So 16 years um, is a very short time, and I believe that he accomplished what he did in a short span the biggest reason was his travels. A big part of why it was achievable was the fact that he traveled across. Um, as a young person, his demeanor, his um, whoever came in contact with him could see the leader in him. He was, he looked like a person who had everything, who he could talk to people on variety of subjects, he looked strong, his physique, his he was just an absolute um, perfection, perfect human being. So to the onlooker, um, Swami Vivekananda having, uh, being a person with a lot of storms and turmoils who couldn't do much uh, was absolutely, um, you know, could, didn't look right. But to him it was. Uh, he was a person who was going through a lot of turmoil within himself, which took him to Sh Sri Ramakrishna in the first place. And um, I think for me, what I believe that when he, the five years he spent at the feet of his guru helped him answer the personal quests. It put a lot of his personal, Naren as an individual, 
got a lot out of that um, that time spent with his guru but how did that transfer to the rest of the world how did he possibly create um, the vibe that he did for rest of the world his wandering days um, were a big part of how he achieved it because I think uh, Thakur, Sri Ramakrishna predicted, I'm just going to read that, the day when Naren comes in contact with suffering and misery, the pride of his character will melt into a mood of infinite compassion. His strong faith in himself will be an instrument to re-establish in discouraged souls the confidence and faith they have lost. And the freedom of his conduct based on self-mastery will shine brightly in the eyes of others as the manifestation of the true liberty of the ego. And I think that moment, to me, that resonates, that part of his life resonates most with me. Uh, because the years in, in 1998, Narendra left the monastery, the Baranagarmat, uh, as a parivrajika, as they call the Hindu religious life of a wandering monk. Um, without fixed abode, without ties, independent and strangers, wherever they go. The Hindu monk believes in that, and that's what he took on. And uh, traveled extensively across India for five years before he went to the West. And um, like Robert said earlier, visited a lot of different places by lots of modes of transportation, met a variety of people. Um, and all of that led him his, um, you know, his pride, ambition, and love, faith, all of that melted into one big sort of melting pot. And I think to me, what resonates most is that phase where eventually when the, I would say the penny dropped, where he felt that this, you know, this is where the true problems of the country are. And uh, these are the ways to sort of, you know, um, transform his guru's teachings to uh, resonate more with the world. I think that's what, to me, is the most fascinating part of Swamiji's life. Yeah, so if I would focus on the events, um, for me there were, there were three main events that I sort of kept thinking about things. There was one event where Swamiji is in a, a cave and he is in India and he is at a point of desperation He's almost at the point of um, going crazy over the fact that he's not able to experience and realize uh, mother. And uh, I think for me that was always very touching. Again, as we've emphasized, he's younger than I am at the time of his death. And for somebody of such mat spiritual maturity to have such a deep craving said, well, I've got a, a long way to go. But also, it emphasized that this was a journey of a discovery and it wasn't something that was just given. We know that when Sri Ramakrishna met um, Swamiji, he recognized in him immediately who he was. Mm. But we also see through his life events that there was unfurling. And in this moment of desperate craziness, you realize that the intensity, the devotion, the real hankering of God and what that should be. It also showed to me that you know, you, you need, you, we need to strive and, and it's not, uh, we have blessed people around us, we have this society, we have various contexts and information, but until we strive with that one-heartedness, one there was a, a way to go. I think a second event that always resonated with me was the moment a few days before his death where Guru and, and Swamiji are together. 
And um, where at that moment um, Swamiji recounts feeling this electric shock that runs through his body when Swami, when, uh, when uh, Sri Ramakrishna passes something over to him. And I think that something was that inherent belief that you are the future of this uh, society and this is the work of manager, as was alluded to earlier, that now is your job. I mean, Swamiji presents to us an intellect and articulation that is beyond what I've personally come across in any form of, of text and and to then impart on him the next next steps going forward. And the third, just for the sake of brevity, was, was the Parliament of Religions. I mean, if we think about those events, those monumental events, to think that he applied to go to this event. There were others from Hinduism who were to be represented, but he applied to go to such an event and um, to think the impact that he then had in, on that, uh, in that Western country on minds who were probably not heard much of his method and then the truths that we have all come to respect of universality, of religion, of oneness, of the fact that I've walked your paths, we can all work, we're all walking the same paths. I think that was the message of harmony of religions that, we, uh, you know, that was astounding. So when you look big picture, I think there were probably three moments I reflect Thanks upon very fondly. Yeah, well, I've, I'd like to share, um, there's always one incident from the Swami's life that stands out for me. It's it kind of, epitomizes the exotic east if nothing else and it's when he was up in the mountainous part of India wandering Sadhu and the area he was in there were very poor village people there hill people and he found as a monk of course he's begging his food and he found that that was putting quite a put a pressure on them they could hardly feed themselves and he goes into this very kind of strange mood where he decides, all right, I'm not going to beg any more food from these people. And he wanders off into the jungle nearby. And then a couple of days later, he's sitting on a, like a stone slab and eyes open, but in a meditative mood. And, and then he finds there's this large tiger sitting nearby, looking at him and he says with shining eyes. And and then it's extraordinary, he, he says to himself, at long last I'll, I shall find some peace and this animal its food. Quite an extraordinary thing to think at that time. And, and then I'm, I'm looking at it from through the tiger's eyes. What does the tiger think of this? Mm -hmm. Normally, large tiger, it's got a lot of experience. I don't think it's ever come across <laughs> a, a creature who's not quivering in fear, collapsing from fright trying to desperately run away, this creature actually just sits motionless and the Swami says he, he, he just then calmly sat there and closed his eyes and waited for the tiger to take him away in its jaws. So tigers, or even house cats, you watch a house cat, I grew up with cats in the home, they are very suspicious creatures. They'll even turn their nose up at some unfamiliar food and tigers we know are master hunters. So they're very canny, they're very suspicious creatures. So I'm imagining the tiger observing the strange behavior of this creature. It, must, it might have thought this is some kind of trap. You know, I, I, don't, I don't think I'm going to risk trying to eat this, this strange creature. So after a while, the, the Swami opened his eyes and he's, he sees the tiger slinking off into the forest, probably relieved to escape you know, from this dangerous situation. But then, okay, now let's think about this. This is really, really come back to the Swami. What strange behavior by him? This is, isn't this entirely reckless? But then 
when you when you look at it at that time, as as you've been touching on, he's a young man and he's actually under a lot of pressure. And there are many things in his life that are pressuring him. He's looked up to by his brother monks as their leader. They're they're looking up to him, to 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 guide them and look after them. Um, Swamiji's family, they were in, in poverty after the passing away of his father. The family were in great difficulties. There was that worry and pressure yeah. there. He, so they're reduced to poverty. And then he's very conscious of, of how much Sri Ramakrishna is expecting from him, that he's going to be a, a, a great figure in, in Indian history and, and, and shape partly the world's history too. So all these things on his bearing on him, and as Vivek was touching on, his at the same time, this intense desire for liberation. He feels, I haven't gone, I, I haven't gone and honoured my spiritual life fully yet. Mm -hmm. So all that's weighing on him. So perhaps maybe he viewed this tiger as, yes, here's a kind of perverse <laughs> way to get a quick exit and, and be liberated from the world. But what is, you know, unfortunately, even the tiger didn't want to eat him. So, so then he thought, oh, this is Sri Ramakrishna manoeuvring behind the scenes for sure and he's not going to let me go until I, I finish what I have to do. So now let's uh, move on to the next point. And I, I was thinking about this. Haven't you noticed the traveler in our midst, how someone who's traveling to your country for the first time, and you'll meet them, and you'll ask them how they're liking their, their, their holiday here or wherever. And, and you find many times the traveler has an ob objective view of, of you, you and your culture. And I think Swami Vivekananda, of course, had that as well, that when he, when he, especially when he arrived in America, he, he's, got, he's, he's got the position of the detached observer and he can quickly size up the strengths and weaknesses of the culture he's in and, and then start comparing it with his own culture and where he's come from. And so some of the things he immediately, that became apparent to him quite quickly was uh, that the West, unlike the East, was, was suspicious and, and ignorant about the, the deeper mystical side of religion. And also he found that the West, of course, very glossy and modern and organized, and that's, that's quite, a, quite, quite overwhelming for him. But then he, after a while, he detects there's, there's a sort of a, a loneliness there underneath that, a kind of a wailing heart within. But then again, he, he was, became painfully aware of the state of India at that time, that compared to the West, it was quite backward in some ways. Uh, th there, there was this, this long history behind it, so it's not easy for it to change and adapt. And, and also he saw that the West, what organizing ability it has, how the women were coming forward in the West at that time. And, and, and he visited prisons and hospitals and he saw how well people were, were cared for. All this really hit him and made him, made him reflect. So touching on, on all those and more if we like with the panel, um, how far do we think now, all these years later, how far has the East and West progressed in coming to deal with, with these imbalances today? Who'd like to go first? Vivek. <laughs> um, so, so I think there's, there's no doubt that with globalisation, with technologies and things, we are seeing in modern society a lot of progression in the East. I mean, when we look at economies that have grown in the last 
years, it's, it's the Chinese, the Indian economies, uh, the Asian economies, a lot of developed countries are, have progressed. And that said, though, you can very readily look at places like Africa and you look and you think there is a lot of, uh, a lot of relative slowness in progression and difficulty. I think with that difficulty, we're not hearing anything, I don't believe, stronger and more when it comes to spiritual progression. And it seems like it's a reflection of society that we seem to be moving in a direction of, of material advancement. I'm not sure if Swamiji was present in today's age, whether he would view upon society and say that we are moving more spiritually minded. I think he would be very pleased that the spiritual content and reach has become much broader. So for those who are looking and genuinely looking, um, there's no doubt that um, there is a lot more ready experiences. But I think like a lot of society in this stage, it's that quality of experience or that depth of experience which may not necessarily be reflected so readily. So I'm not sure when I look back at India and I, I'm very proud to particularly in the last five years just to hear about the way there's more progression but still much of India is in abject poverty um, much of the systems continue to have many of the issues that no doubt he talked about back in that day. The role of women I think is, is improving and growing uh, in India but you know, it, media is obviously brought to the fore many backward and criminal uh, life events that are continuing to plague the Indian society. So um, we have a long way to go. And similarly, I look at the West um, and, and think that we, we're becoming a, so much more about acquisition. Uh, you, you it's all about what the ASX is crashing through. It's all about what Sydney property prices are doing. Um, you know, it's becoming about other issues like climate change and things, but, you know, when, when a third of the population lives in abject poverty and when we as a society, uh, you know, we come here for our time, but, but it's that taking home of the messages and putting them in practice that's the challenge. So I think there's a long way to go when you look at the two. Work in progress, yeah. Yeah, work in progress for sure, but I think depends on which perspective we look at. Um, Back in the day, like when Swamiji traveled to the West, uh, the there were clear-cut demarcations between the East and the West. It was a big deal to go all the way to the West. In today's day and age, that demarcation is very fuzzy. Uh, the world has come much closer. The world, you know, um, has progressed in terms of that aspect that that social or the physical boundaries are not as visible as they were back in the day people travel more freely so I would say depending on uh, what boundaries we are we talk about there is a lot has moved forward the people have become one in that aspect across the physical boundaries of the state but if we talk about patriotism uh, from that point of view, when Swamiji talked about patriotism, about his motherland, his love for his own nation, um, his visit to the West brought um, into, you know, bare naked eyes that, okay, this is what rest of the world is doing, and India is not doing that. What, how can the two worlds benefit from each other was his thought when he bridged that gap. In today's day and age, unfortunately, the view of patriotism is very narrow. World leaders of today, like if we see the misery around us, if we think about Iran or if we think about the political leaders of, say, Donald Trump and the likes, the way they present the word patriotism or nationalism, I think it is a very sad state, and that is not what Swamiji 
meant when he probably talked about motherland and doing something for your own country taking ideas from one what is good in one take it back and you know uh, benefit from each other that way we are probably moving in the backward direction unfortunately to speak but if we think about the way the world has become physically closer and people are using each other's ideas we have come a fair way um the other thing i think when swamiji spoke in chicago his momentary lecture at the parliament he did not speak of vedanta as a teaching of a single individual he rarely ever mentioned shri ram krishna and um, you know to when i was younger i always questioned it that how come we hear more about swami vivekananda and not enough about shri ram krishna but i think there was a there was a reason he was presenting vedanta as a universal spiritual prototype um which could bridge the spiritual and cultural gap between the east and the west and when we say bridging a gap it's a give and take he intended for the east and west to learn from each other not one become like the other or vice versa that was not the intention so i think in the modern day people the the leaders are intending uh, become like me what we do is the right way my way or no other way but i think what swami ji was intending was to take the best out of each and make something valuable as an individual and the individual in influences the society not the other way around it's not the society that's important the individual is and i think that's the point that's being missed by several but several ha- who have latched on to his teachings have understood that it goes beyond the physical boundary of state and that's important i think so that's one way of looking at it nationalism is a pretty tricky business is it yes it's dangerous too well uh when it comes to the western mysticism i've been fascinated by in particular the work that hugh mckay has done he's a an australian social researcher perhaps one of our best over the last few decades and when he was doing research and interviews for one of his recent books which is called Beyond Belief he came across something he hadn't heard about before and he realized this is quite a movement throughout the west and that's the SBNRs uh and they are people who describe themselves as spiritual but not religious and and it's uh, I, it was reminding me kind of it seems to echo Swami Vivekananda's maxim that it's good to be born in a church but it's bad to die in one <laughs> and the SBNRs you know they they may not be we're not going to suggest they're very spiritually advanced I guess Vivek was touching on you can when you in breadth of outlook you can lose a bit of depth and I think that's probably something that that happens with the SBNRs they may not be going in so deep but but the interesting thing about them is um that they want to move beyond static piety and they want to go towards dynamic spirituality which means don't just have blind belief they they want to experience the spiritual part of themselves yeah. they want they do want to dive in a bit deeper and 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 they and they want transformation in their life they want to see that they have actually changed they're not just going along to some service each week and years later they're still pretty much the same person and they're following like some cultural convention and to quote Hugh Mackay um he uh, he's he's saying religion 
is an historic, I mean, this is how these SBNRs are viewing things. Religion is an historical phenomenon based on doctrines, rituals, and institutional structures that evolved over centuries. Whereas spirituality as a concept seems both present and timeless and, and more dynamic. Anyways, now moving on regarding India, uh, 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 I did have a bit of research for today and I interviewed, there's a, a young Indian lady, she's just come here to study. Um, and she's, in the meantime, she's been in, in Singapore for a couple of years and she's coming here for a few months. So a young person from India, I thought, why don't I ask her what's going on? Mm. How, how are you viewing things? What's happening? And, and so, I, I mean, what I was wondering is, we've got an unprecedented number of young people now from India studying overseas. And I think that's quite interesting. What sort of an impact is it having on them? How is it changing their outlook on the world? And, and so I was asking her about that. Mm. And she said, look, it's, it's not even, we're, we're a select group still who are able to do that, to come out from India and study overseas. But she said, meanwhile, the young people in India, well, there's this thing called the internet, and they are there surfing that, and they are being fully exposed, for better and worse, to the rest of the world. Mm. And, she, and she, I was happy to hear from her that she said, look, in the past, it was all about where worshipping the West. We, we're going after the West. We want the West. She said she's finding a change now, and that's something I've picked up on too, that they are becoming more aware of what's valuable in their own culture. And they, like Swami Vivekananda did, they are starting to compare and see the strengths and weaknesses on, on, on either side. And, and she said that's, that's really happening. We, we are becoming more aware of what value we have and we're not going to just give it all up and, and, and ape the West. So I, I was happy to hear that. And then the final thing is, and I love this idea too, she said there is an emerging world culture that all the young people in the world, they are, they are coming gradually more and more together. The, the barriers are breaking down and they are dipping into each other's cultures. They're marrying each other and it's a world culture, and that's, mm. that's a very interesting thing that's happening now too. And, and that's, what, <clears throat> that's what fuzzies those physical boundaries now. Mm. The East and the West are not that different anymore. That where does West actually begin? If you ask me, I would be baffled, I'm not sure. Mm. So it's all becoming one because of those achievements that the world has progressed. I mean, internet has its downsides, but the upside is it brings the world close, closer. People are very aware of various cultures. And like you rightly said, they, they want to take what's best in each, not just give up just because they're, you know, flattened by the fleshy outlook of some other culture. So if I could also add the, the West learning from the East, we have our first medical students who left yesterday for Hyderabad in India, where they're going to spend oh. six months. Yeah. And right. it's an education, it's a first for medicine in Australia to do it, but um, it was based on what they can learn both obviously clinically from India in terms of its social and health problems, but also their own experiences of what a, a different society would be like in yeah. global medicine. And it's, it's that sort of uh, practical Absolutely. sort of difference in, in how you sort of go forward that I think is starting to come. I've also heard statistics around India's 1.3 billion population of whom 800 million are under the age of 30. And when you think about that number Amazing. and you think about what education 
and what Swamiji said about education. Yes. When you look worldwide, you can think that with internet, with additional access issues, you can see a greatness that will further emerge, you know? Yeah. Yeah, very interesting Thank times, Marie. No, so we better move on. Once this slide, whoops. Now we'll, we'll go to more of a personal level. And the panel's panel, I'm requesting them to reflect on how travel has changed them. How have you been challenged by travel? How has it enriched you? Any standout experiences? Um, I think for <laughs> personally, my, my life, um, I was six weeks old. Um, I was born in England. I was six weeks old when my family migrated to India back to India, I should say. My family moved back to India. So I was born in England, but essentially raised in India. And uh, it might seem irrelevant to the onlooker, but to a child uh, who was always told that you were not born in India, you, I look Indian. I was growing up among, among Indians and speaking the language, everything that other children were doing. But I always knew that I wasn't born in this country. Now that to, you know, as I grew older, that curiosity increased to the next level. Like I never voted in India, uh, like to a young adult, that was a big thing. All my peers were voting and it's a big thing. Who, which party do you go for? It almost seemed like my, um, my idea doesn't count. Do I ever do? Do I really belong, or do I not? So I think for me, that travel that started so young uh, changed me um, as an individual. And I think I was 20 when I went back to the UK, my country of birth, and visited UK for a short six, eight weeks. But I connected. I thought, okay, this is where it all started, um, and I'm good. I'm glad to be back. I'm content. Um, I did not really connect to the culture there because I knew nothing about the culture, so to speak, except from what I heard, like secondary information. But I felt like, okay, I'm back. This is good. I'm content, happy to be back where I was, and it, feel, I, it felt complete. So to me, I think the word travel just had a very different meaning. I went back to India. Then at a young age, I traveled to the US, studied there and lived there for three, three and a half years, after which my husband and I moved to Australia. And for the past 16 years, we've called Australia home. Both our children were born here. This is life here now. So to me, the word, um, which country do I belong to, has no bearing at all. It is the three places, the place of birth, as the Indians call it, the Janmabhumi, which is so important to most people, was England, where I have barely ever spent any time. Um, Matrubhumi to me, or motherland to me, is India. Because I was raised Indian, I've, I have the values to me, that is India. But my Karmabhumi, or the land where your action is contained, is Australia. So in that sense, that's, that's my, this is my country where all my action has happened, more so to speak, as an adult. Um, and these three aspects of my life um, have sort of fuzzied across so well that that attachment to one country or a state um, does not exist in my mind. It's the person that counts. And to share a bit more of my family background, I would say my parents, um, were born and raised in India and uh, went to the US in the 60s as students, but 
were ardent followers of Thakur Ma Swamiji's teachings, so wanted to take back what they learned from the West and implemented it in their motherland, India, and started a community work organization. They were they are heavily even still involved in community work. That's how I grew up. But whenever I have these discussions with my parents about what it means to give back to your country, what it meant to them to, because they were people who grew up in um, newly free India or free from the British, that India. To them, the patriotism and that India is my country where I need to take back exists, was much stronger as a belief, but to me it's not. To me, the human being that I am in touch with counts. Like I could be, I am a little part of a very big world, but the people I come in contact with, whoever they are, are the people I influence. And to me, that um, is important, not the country. It's the community I belong to. Wherever I am, it's the community I belong to. So that between our, in our family, I think that Swamiji's view of humanitarian oneness, um, the two stark differences can be seen. One, where the previous generation believes that this is my country, this is where I need to take back my learning, give something back to my country where I grew up. Uh, whereas the next generation, which is myself, believes, no, it's the community I belong to. So travel has been a big part, and it, I think it has changed over the generations in that sense. Yeah. Um, so with, when I think about travel, so I'm Australian-born but of Indian heritage, and my parents migrated here many years ago. I think, and I've been fortunate to travel quite a lot. I've never lived, I guess, for prolonged periods in any country, but I have traveled to a, a number of different countries. I guess a few things come out. Uh, First and foremost, I think the contrast in terms of the setting which we live, we all appreciate immensely. I mean, you go to India, it doesn't take very long, whether you're from Mumbai in India, when you go to Mumbai or you travel to Delhi, you all of a sudden are just struck by the different social circumstances. So you realise how lucky you are, uh, is the first thing. We have beautiful air, we have clean water, we are not harassed, we have a very quiet existence. You also get struck when you go to a country like India about just how busy and in your face it is, which is just wonderful and life-affirming when you are a tourist. I imagine for some who are constantly in that environment, particularly those who may not have resources of their own of much, that could be very oppressive and very difficult um, with the competition. When I think back to different, a couple of specific uh, travel experiences from a spiritual viewpoint, I remember when I was in my teens going to Tirupati in the south of India, and uh, that led to a trip to Kanyakumari, um, where my Swami, Swamiji was there. Um, but Tirupati was notable because I was in my teens, I didn't know much about what we were going to do there, mm. but I knew that I would be visiting the temple and, and uh, <laughs> after the three hours of, of lining up to get into the temple, it was over. And I'm not sure, I still to this day don't quite know whether I looked in the right direction or the wrong <laughs> direction. Um, but I remember that experience suggested to me that perhaps it was more important to find the spirituality inside yourself rather than going a long way and yeah. spending a long time in a line. And now that was a young person's view of that, but it was quite, quite striking. And then I also remember um, later on, many years later, doing a trip across... Uh, uh, more northeast of India, but then subsequently took me to Sri Ramakrishna Mission in Calcutta, where, where Rob and I met, and we went to Darjeeling afterwards. But part of that trip, and it was a little bit perchance, took me to Bodhgaya and to Varanasi, and all of these very spiritual places. Anyone who's planning a trip to India, I mean, certainly it was a wonderfully diverse trip. You had typical India, and then you had these very different experiences, like Bodhgaya is thought to be where Buddha had enlightenment. And it's an incredibly peaceful space in India. And then you go to Varanasi and you see the, 
the, the both the, the spirituality of the place, the history, and then you get the sense of the charlatans, and you get a sense of people who are out to fleece you but on religious grounds, and you come face to face with that, and then you end up uh, meandering your way, and, and then you end up, you know, places like the da Darjeeling, where you've got the, the intents of Tibetan culture and the beauty of the Himalayas and things, and it sort of re brings to you what it is to, to think that this is true serenity and beauty, and obviously it's not our everyday life, but it was quite an experience, so that's what stood out. Well, of course, I've been to India many times, but I'm for preparing for this, I was remembering the first overseas trip I made, and that was to Bali back in 1980. And I read up a lot about Bali before going, so I knew that it's predominantly a Hindu culture, and I was already, already interested in yoga and meditation, so I was very happy to be going to a, a Hindu country, so to say, or Hindu culture. And what I did was, rather than stay in a hotel, I stayed in a family Losman, I mean, a Losman, which is a, a family compound. And that way, it's, it's very simple accommodation, but you're actually living with the family, and you really get to see the daily life and the culture. So anyway, I landed at Dempasa and jumped in a taxi, <laughs> and <laughs> making my way out, this is where I was staying, was on the outskirts of Kuta, so kind of a semi-rural area. And I'm sitting in the back seat of the taxi, and I'm kind of jet-lagged, and I'm just looking at the scenery and what's unfolding before me outside. You know, there's increasingly exotic sights. There are straight-backed women walking along the road with, with big baskets on their head full of fruits and vegetables. And, and there are monkeys scampering here and there. And I'm sitting there, and it's kind of like I was, I was watching this on TV and, and that the windows of the taxi were like the screen. And I can remember very clear, <laughs> clearly as I'm feeling the humidity and, and, and smelling the outside, at one point, it was almost like an automatic reaction that I, I'll, I'll reach for the remote and I'll just turn this off. And then it hit me, no, I'm here. I'm actually, I'm in this. I'm not, I'm not just watching it. I'm surrounded by it and I'm going to be in it for the next couple of weeks. And, and at that moment, I knew what culture shock is. That it became real to me. I had actually culture shock. I could not believe you know, this, this magic of, of getting in a jet airliner, this metal tube, and a few hours later you're stepping out on the other side of the world into another, another, um, uh, another culture, uh, uh, another climate, everything. All, all of a sudden you're confronted with this very different world and of course my first trip. So, so then, of course, I settled in and had a wonderful time and, and, and you know the Balinese are very artistic people the plays, the carvings they do, the paintings they do, it's all scenes from the Hindu epics. Mm -hmm. So, so uh, I learned a lot about that. But now, to finish, the, the next interesting thing that happened was, you know, Bali's a very lush, green, beautiful country. What happened was, when I came back to Australia, I had, I had what I call reverse culture shock. <laughs> because when I, when I came out of the airport, Australia looked looked very drab. The people looked very ungainly and unrefined and too loud. And their clothes, their clothing looked really drear and utilitarian. And, and, the, and, the, and even the, the, the vegetation looked old and tired. And, and it was a very strange thing, seeing my country in this different light. And it took me a few weeks to get over that. 
and, uh, so that's that's quite a yeah, an interesting thing I had. So uh, I I just imagine with with and also with Vivekananda that for when he went to the West, it was like he had stumbled in all of a sudden into the future. Mm. I, c I could well imagine that was what it was like for him. Anyway, look, I think we we will have to wind it up. It's I think you'll find it's been a very interesting session and very thankful to Ami and Vivek. They okay. presented some very interesting things for us uh, in response to the items we explored. And, and thanks very much for hearing us out.